eyes as we prepare to read this week's text. So our text this morning is in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 and 10 through 13. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, Come, let us get meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. You may be seated. Stubborn man, that Nehemiah. <laughs> it's often argued that the two greatest presidents in U.S. history um, are between George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, as you probably know. Those are usually the top two contenders. If you look up online or read articles about it, they're usually at the top two. Their faces are on Mount Rushmore, just to kind of... Um, give you an idea about the, the validity, validity, at least behind the belief of that statement. Gary Smith is a professor, I think, at Grove City College. He, com- he comments, scholars contend that Washington's genius lies principally in his character. The only other American president who has been so highly extolled for his character is Abraham Lincoln. Since Washington, all presidents have been ultimately measured not by the size of their electoral victories or the success of their legislative programs, but by their moral character. He continues that one of the greatest displays Washington ever produced of his character was the the crowning achievement of Washington's character was his simultaneous resignation in 1783 as the commander-in-chief of the American army 
and his retirement from the world of politics. Now, it may elude us to, to consider the significance of this, but world history has demonstrated time and time again after any commanding general over a massive army who is basically defending themselves from a tyrannical government, subsequently that, that general was crowned the king. He was just made the new sovereign. And George Washington had this power in his reach. And for the first time in human history, the victorious general refused sole political authority. Now that's incredible. That's a true statement. He possessed the hearts of his soldiers, the, the hearts of the people. He had the power in his hands, and he gave it to the people. Unprecedented in human history. So no, no, no scholar no, of history is going to argue that men like Washington and Lincoln were men of unprecedented principle and character. And we see the same sort of commitment to righteousness in our figure, Nehemiah. For the first time, if you've been with us for a little while and we've, you've been studying this book with us for a little while, for the first time in just the unfolding drama that is Nehemiah's vision to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, we see a direct frontal assault on Nehemiah the man. It's a personal attack on his character, his intelligence. In previous chapters, if you recall, we see opposition against the people of Israel, right, through ridicule, they're getting made fun of, threats of violence. And then last week, we saw an internal opposition come up with a problem internally within the nation of Israel. So there's all these things that could disrupt what is the grand vision Nehemiah had to serve Jesus the King by rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. So now in a last-ditch effort, after all of this has failed, all guns are aimed at Nehemiah, the leader, Nehemiah the person. It, it's not the Seahawks only, the Seattle Seahawks only, that have a secret weapon of boom, right? <laughs> Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and Shemaiah, this evil legion of boom, so to speak, had, had gotten the order from the sidelines to take out Nehemiah at the knees. And this is how they were going to solve this problem of God's kingdom on earth. They're playing hardball. They're bringing down the leader. They're fighting dirty. Normally at the start of a battle, they don't, the objective isn't normally to take out the general because the general is where all the strength and power is. It's very difficult to get at him, so you're just going to lose. So normally at the start of the battle, you attack points of weakness. But later parts of the battle are different. People are tired. The leader's tired. You know, leaders get tired too. These men have three tactics, and this is very important, so we all need to consider this in our lives. There are three tactics to take out Nehemiah, and these are the tactics that, that Satan is going to use to take you out too, as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ. We're going to call them today the hole, the toll, and the mole. You like that? Rhymes. The hole, the toll, and the mole. Satan uses these strategies to take us down, friends. And what's important, what's at stake is the name and fame of Jesus Christ. So we need to, we need, if, if you're tired, you're probably tired. You might have been up late last night. We all need to wake up. Can you wake up with me? And let's, let's listen to this, because this is the powerful word of God that is communicated to us through his word so that we can live victorious lives in Christ. So let's, let's look at the whole, the first weapon against Nehemiah. It reads this in verse 1. Let's be reminded, When word came to our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall 
and not a gap was left in it. He was done. The wall was finished. In 50 some odd days, a miracle had happened and Israel actually pulled it off. So not a gap was left in it, though up to that time, I had not set the doors in the gates. So it's done, but it's not done. It's almost done. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, come let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. Kind of seemingly harmless type of request from these guys. But this great and seemingly impossible vision is almost done. Nehemiah and Israel smell victory. It's at arm's length. It's right there. They're almost finished. Now it's quite common, you guys might know this, to slow down a bit when we think we've won. The game's almost done, and we think we've won, so we just start to slow down. We start to gloat a little bit. We start to dance into the end zone, right? Because we're up by so many points. We think the game's in the bag. Oh, and I know what you're all thinking about right now (laughs) because you live in New England. And we all saw probably one of the best Super Bowls that any of us have ever seen in our lives, right? Amazing. But most of us, now I'm going to totally throw the people I was with under the bus with me. And Alan, you were there, right? (laughs) So the Pats are down 28 to 3. And I think most of us just kind of quietly reserved that the game was lost. Now we're fans. We are Pats fans. We are Brady fans. We love the Patriots, right? But we just all started eating crab dip, right? (laughs) And chatting and laughing, not kind of paying attention anymore. I was even in my mind thinking, I'm going to go home because it's late. It's the third quarter. It's 28 to 3. I'm tired. I have to go to work in the morning. Sorry, Brady, right? So we start chatting. I'm thinking I'm going home. But as you all know, the rest is history. I forget the exact timeline, but they started putting points on the board. And we started dreaming these crazy dreams. Well, what if they get two touchdowns and get two two-point convert? Right, you know, right? Well, it's possible, right? And we're all thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> and the amaz- they, were, it was, they had it. The Falcons had it. They won the game, almost. Something happened to them. I don't know what it was. I don't know if they just started getting tired or falling apart or if they, the Pats just started playing like the Pats do, maybe both. The game we thought was over wasn't over. And that is very dangerous in the Christian life. When we think we've won and we think our great spiritual victories have been accomplished so that we can now just kind of chill out. And prayer isn't as important as it used to be. And vigilance in the Word of God isn't as vital. That's when Satan gets us. Likewise, Nehemiah was almost done. The game had almost been completed, but it wasn't done. He was almost done with the work God had called him to do. Almost. And what an important word for all of us to hear. Friends, if you're Christians and if you've been Christians for a long time, you are almost done. Almost. You're not done. I don't care if you're 20, you're almost done. Because in light of eternity, eternity's a long time. And 80 years is, a, is just a blip on the screen. 
So if you're 20 or 60 or 80, you're almost done with the Christian life. Almost. And everything that you do matters. Every single day matters. Every single moment matters. And there is nothing more important than staying focused and staying in the game because it is not done. The Legion of Boom wanted to put down Nehemiah, stick him in a hole of distraction. Come on down and meet us. And Nehemiah says, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Oh, that, this is what they say. And his reply was, um, I sent messages to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. They kept going after him. Come on down, Nehemiah. Come on down. You're done. The project's over. The invitation would have been attractive and seemingly harmless to, I think, any of us. If it had come kind of midway through, the, the, the walls are halfway up, he would have seen the writing on the wall. This is a ploy to, get, to distract me and to slow us down, to take the leader away, right, while we're all in the middle of working. But it hadn't come in the middle. It was at the end. They were, it, it, would have, it would have been an obvious ploy if it was in the middle, but it wasn't at the middle. The wall was finished and the work was complete, almost. Very smart of this legion of boom. It could have appeared to be a surrender of sorts, Right, that's kind of how I would have been processing a concession speech. We're pretty much done. Nehemiah, you won. We tried. We failed. We're going to be neighbors now. So let's just bury the hatchet and be friends. It could have just appeared that it was some kind of concession speech that they were presenting to him. And it may be even kind of rude if he doesn't go. Really tempting bait. What would have been wrong with meeting these men to talk? Let's consider this. I think there would have been two things wrong. First, true, the wall was finished and the gates remained, but the gates remained. He wasn't done. And as long as he wasn't done, there was an enemy. And that enemy wouldn't stop. They were almost done. Nehemiah knew that the game isn't over until it's over and there's still some time on the clock, so it's not over, so I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going to put myself in a hole. And friends, as long as there's breath in our lungs, the work, the work isn't over. And as I said earlier, we may have been Christians for 10 years or 20 or two. We might, we might have been a Christian for a long time and seen highs and lows and all these different things. And, but all of this to say that we can lose our vision still because of all this, ironically, because of there was a great work we can start to lose our vision. Our following Jesus always matters. Do you know that it's, it's often said by evangelical leaders, Billy Graham, they all say the same thing, that it's very common after some spiritual victory, spiritual high, that that's when it's the easiest to fall into sin, right when it's done. So evangelical leaders, pastors, they all say the same thing. So after some kind of crusade or some kind of preaching moment where the Holy Spirit's moving and, and things are going great and people are coming to faith in Jesus and you go back to your hotel room and Satan tempts you and you're at your weakest. Wasn't that true about Elijah? Who after showing up, he showed up the prophets of Baal by calling down fire from heaven, consuming them all, and he ends up running in fear because one person doesn't like him because of it. The same Elijah with the faith of fire 
was now afraid after the moment. You see, because it's never done. The work of sanctification and the life of following Jesus Christ is every moment, every day. So we need to, we, we can never forget the priority of being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. The work's almost done. We're almost there. Our, our lives are but a vapor, right? It's almost there, but it's not there yet. S- second, what else would have been wrong? It would have been wrong to stop the work because he would have been forgetting, and so do we, that, w- that the work of Jesus Christ's kingdom is carrying, quote, on a greater project. And cannot, he said, I am doing a greater thing, and I cannot go down. There is nothing greater than our service to Jesus Christ. Now, when I was about 16 years old, I had a, a history teacher who was a very godly man who told me something that I've never forgotten. And I, I never wrote it down. It was just one of those things that he said it to me, and I've never forgotten it. He said, the good is always the enemy of the best. And the good things of life are often what prevent us from following Jesus Christ. It's usually not sin. It's usually not wild, disgusting, grotesque, heinous, sinful things that people in the world don't even do. It's usually good things. And we forget that the greater thing is the kingdom of God. And we let our family, we let our children, we let education, we let work, we let play, we let everything take priority over over King Jesus. And it distracts us. The good is always the enemy of the best. Could it have been a good thing for Nehemiah to just talk to these guys? Of Of course that would have been fine. But it wouldn't have been the best thing. It wouldn't have been the greater thing, the greater work. It would have taken Nehemiah at least a day to get there, a day to talk to them, and a day back. Three days that he can never get back. When he could have been serving Jesus, instead wasting his time on things that don't matter. Three days away from the greater work. Friends, if you don't see your daily walk with Jesus Christ as greater than anything else in life, then you're going to choose the good over the best, and at times, the clearly bad over the best. We do this. We have to have a vision of the greater, the sovereign will of God accomplished in our lives and in this world. To the the world, Nehemiah um, might have... That was frightening. (laughs) What was that? Do you guys know what that was? All right, well, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> to the world, Nehemiah may have had some bizarro values. You know bizarro Superman? He's like up is down, black is white, good is bad, right? Bizarro. These are some bizarre. Greater? Nehemiah, just consider this with me. Nehemiah said, I'm doing a greater work. So consider Nehemiah's new job compared to his old one. How many people have ever gotten a new job that was way worse than your old one? And you're all, all you're doing is thinking about the one that you loved 10 years ago, right? <laughs> right? We've all been there. But think about what Nehemiah used to do. He was cupbearer to the king. That meant that possibly he was the second most powerful man in the world. Per, the, the king Artaxerxes of Persia 
was the leading super, superpower on the earth at the time, and the cupbearer oftentimes had second authority to the king alone. Incredible. He worked in the palace. He had access to the king. And he left all this to repair the broken down rubble of a city on the outskirts of the empire with a depleted workforce that were both discouraged and cranky. And by the way, he had oppositions on the north, the south, the east, and the west. The world would not have considered this work great, would they have? They would have considered his work in Persia great. And friends, oftentimes this is our story in Christianity. We leave seeming great things to serve Jesus, and it seems bizarro to the rest of the world around us. As Christians, we will never be committed to following Jesus and doing the right thing unless we really believe that it's a greater and better work. Unless we know it. It's a faith thing. Better than what we're giving up for it. Better than anything that we could accomplish outside of it. You're just going to, if you don't realize that, you're going to start wanting the leaks of Egypt again. You're going to be in the desert. You're going to feel the pressure of kind of want of material goods. And you're going to remember that, you know, you used to, under, before you knew Jesus Christ, you used to have wonderful food. This is what the Israelites did in, in, the, in the wilderness. They were remembering Egypt, and they wished they could go back there and eat the cucumbers again and not be in the desert, barely alive. As a matter of fact, we often end up knowingly entering into sin because we think the payout is better. We think that if we make this choice and that choice, I'm gonna, something in my life is going to be satisfied more fully and more greatly than if I follow Jesus Christ. So we believe the lie of Satan who said, you will not die. This is okay. It's not a big deal. As a matter of fact, not only is it not a big deal, you're going to get something that God won't give you if you turn from him. To stop the work so close to the end would have been a misplaced priority. He would have buried the vision. See? But this distracting tactic fails. He's not buying it. He's not taking the bait. So Sanballat turns to plan two, the toll. They start to threaten Nehemiah. Pay attention to us or you're going to pay the toll. You're going to pay the price. The text reads in verse 5, then the fifth time, right, so four times they've written, and now the fifth time, he's like, all right, I'm not playing games anymore, dude. <laughs> the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an underline, unsealed letter, in which was written, I'll explain that in a second. It is reported among the nations that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, you know. So come and meet me. In chapter 2, this same tactic was used, but with one difference. Sanballat sends Nehemiah an, quote-unquote, open letter. 
That's what made it unique. And that basically meant that he intended other people to read the letter. He's starting a rumor, in other words. He's opening up a letter to circulate amongst all these different people who will no doubt spread this rumor even further. It basically meant that he intended all these people to read it and therefore start a rumor that would spread even to the king of Persia. Sanballat isn't playing nice anymore. He was basically threatening to report Nehemiah to the king if he didn't comply. And if the king believed this rumor, if the king got, un, heard this message and believed it, goodbye Nehemiah, long live the king. So what's a leader to do when slandered? Or any of us to do? And especially if it sounds kind of true. It's believable, right? He didn't say, Nehemiah is a toad, <laughs> right? It's, this, is, this is something that's believable. Some, some scholars suggest that Nehemiah was in the line of King David himself, and that's how he got the cupbearer position to begin with. Because oftentimes, when a nation would take over another nation, they would take the royalty and, and give them positions of power within their own administration. So a lot of people believe that Nehemiah was in the line of King David. It would have made sense for him to become king. And, <clears throat> and to be sure, the nation of Israel was preserving Jerusalem because they expected the king of kings to come. They wanted a king to come, to be king of all things. So this would have been in their language. This is what got Jesus killed, by the way. Same accusation. And what's more, remember, Nehemiah is like a hero right now. He just pulled something off that no one else could pull off. And what do we do to heroes? We crown them. <laughs> That's oftentimes what we do to them. It would have made sense. It's sort of understandable. It's, it's an understandable concern that Sanballat had, yet it was entirely false. There was no basis of truth in it at all. So how, do, how did Nehemiah respond? How do we respond to things like this? Nehemiah replies like this, Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. <laughs> they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So this is his response. He does three things. The first thing that he does is he actually responds to them. He doesn't sit by and, and be quiet about it. He writes a letter, I'm presuming maybe an open one, <laughs> back to Sanballat. And it's important for those considering the validity of Sanballat. What if Nehemiah is trying to do this? It was important for those considering whether or not this was true or false for Nehemiah to simply deny it. And to not just simply deny it, but to point to the fact that there's no evidence to support it at all. That, that's what's important. And that's what Nehemiah basically says. He says, you're inventing this. He's inviting people to, say, to basically say, investigate the truth behind this claim. You're going to see that it's ridiculous. That that hasn't been my intention at all. So he's not hiding. He's not telling people to not ask questions. He's basically saying, these guys are making this up. And he's being open and honest about it. He's saying, let's talk about this, friends. Show me evidence. And there was none. There's no proof of the claim. It's simply someone else's imagination. But the second thing he does, I love this, this is my favorite part of the whole story. He doesn't come down again. He's still up there. He's still building gates. He, for the fifth time, he's refused these guys. 
he continues working. He still doesn't stop his greater work because it's a greater work to meet these clowns. He just keeps going, even though the stakes are high now and his life's put at risk. And finally, probably most importantly, he prays for strength. And this sort of shows that Nehemiah, doesn't it kind of show that Nehemiah probably was getting a little afraid right now? When you say, God, strengthen my hands, it's probably because your hands are starting to feel weak. So Nehemiah is not made of stone. He knows the stakes are high. He knows his head could get chopped off. He knows the things that could happen. So he needed to continually remind himself who his God was. Because if he didn't do that, he would eventually get weak hands and run away. Like so, so often we do. So he prays for strength. Sometimes it's so much easier to quit, isn't it? Well, oh, when life is getting hard, people are fighting, there's all these problems, even internally, just outside of communal problems, just the things that I wrestle with in my mind and that I'm tempted by, and all these different things happen. It's so much easier to just kind of fantasize about moving to a mountain in Alaska where, with my dogs, and nobody knows that, that I'm there. You guys have all, all done this. Because we know, we, we get some kind of release. I'm just leaving. I'm out. But he doesn't do this. He says, I'm not doing that. I'm praying for strength. Where, where on earth did Nehemiah summons this bravery? How did he do this? And it's clear, to me at least, that he gets this from his relationship with God. He gets this because he's a man of the word and he is a man of prayer. Okay? Maurice Wagner said it like this, personal security comes from our relationship to the three persons of the Godhead. Our relationship to God the Father gives us a sense of belonging. We are members of his family and are secure in our father-child relationship. Did you hear this? We have a father God the Father makes us his children upon repentant faith in Jesus Christ, and that identity is secure. You see? Our Father cares for us, He knows our needs, and He directs all of our lives. So we don't need to fear. Our union with Christ, the Son, number two, right? The Father, the Son. Our union with Christ, the Son, gives us a sense of worth. And why does it do that? It, it does that because God loves us so much that He sent His Son, His own, only Son, to die for us. Because he values us. That makes us worth something. It's worth more than our very lives. Why should I, Who am I to get down from this great work? He knew his value. He knew his worth. He knew who he was in Christ. That even if he lost his life for it, that it's worth it. It's better. God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God offers you that kind of love? What's better than that? With our redemption accomplished, he continues, God has made us joint heirs with Christ. Wow. God the Father loves you the same as he loves Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, friend, but I know the things I've done. And to think that the Father loves me the same way he loves Jesus is unfathomable. Behold the riches of his love and his grace. 
Wow. Finally, wrap your minds around this. The Holy Spirit's indwelling empowers us. The Bible says that upon repentant faith in Jesus Christ, your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit and he goes with you to the ends of the earth. He's with you, empowering you for all things. And that's why, quote, we are made equal to every task. You think you can't do it? Yes, you can. You think you can't say no to temptation? You think that you can't pray regularly and daily? Yes, you can. You think you can't face up to even the greatest challenges of life? Yes, you can. That is an absolute lie because it's not about you. It's not about your strength. It's about the God of heaven and earth who created all things, who loves you, who is with you to do it for you. So you're up to the task. Isn't that great news? You're up to the task. You can say no to your boss when he tells you to do something that's wrong. You can, you can deny yourself some kind of pleasure or companionship because you know that it's wrong. You're up to the task. You can do it. There's nothing that you sacrifice in this life that God doesn't himself fulfill by his relationship to you. And that's, that's, the, that's the inspiration. That's the power. Following Christ, and, and following Christ is a cost at times. It means sometimes giving up companions or friends or comfort. It means taking a job that pays less so that we can spend more time with our family or fellowship with our church. It means being under certain threats at times, physical or financial danger. So to face this, if we're really going to face this, we need strong hands. We need, very, we, we need to pray, strengthen our hands, God. Because in our, in our own strength, we're going to start to weaken. So to get strong hands, we need to daily meditate on God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to remember every day who He is and who He's made you to be. Or you're going to get weak hands. We are His. He is better. Always better. We are loved to the moon. We are always in His care. He will always provide our needs, and we are always equal to the task. Do not fear. So Nehemiah doesn't take the bait. He doesn't bite. He won't jump in the hole of distraction. He won't let the fear of paying the toll deter him. So finally, Sam Ballot pulls out his last trick in his bag of tricks. He plants a mole. He says in verse 10, the scripture says, One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, who was shut up in his home, cleverly. He said, Let us meet in the house of God inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you, Nehemiah, by night. They are coming to kill you. Now this isn't an enemy, outsider. This is an insider. This is an Israelite. Not only is it an Israelite, it's a prophet. It's a religious leader. It's a pastor. Coming up to Nehemiah and saying, Nehemiah, you know what you and I should do? We should both sin so that we can save our lives. Now, it doesn't say that in the text, but that's basically what he's suggesting here. Let's disregard the word of God so that we can profit from it. Now, he couched it in religious language. He was subtle. And oftentimes that's the temptation for us. 
this man considered a prophet of Israel, propositions Nehemiah, dresses this proposition up as the word of God himself. The most heinous of deceits. But what does Paul tell us? That even if I come back to you myself and preach a different gospel, let me be accursed. Even if an angel comes to you and preaches a different word from God, let them be accursed. So here is this prophet of Israel trying to deceive Nehemiah through the most heinous kind of deceit with a microphone and a religious title. And he tricks him. And friend, can I tell you something right now? That it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what Scripture says. And I don't care what I tell you. You you never follow anyone with that kind of blind loyalty. You follow the Word of God. Period. It is the the means by which we are all tested. James Montgomery Boyce comments that this temptation to Nehemiah would have committed two sins. He would have committed two sins. First, he would have been putting his safety ahead of a greater work. We kind of discussed this before. And second, to break God's law, he would have been breaking God's law in order to save his life. So he would, be, would have been taking the lesser for the greater, but he also would have been sinning to be self-serving. Shemaiah was suggesting that Nehemiah not just enter the temple. Some of you might be thinking, like, this is kind of confusing to me. What does this even mean? If you're kind of new to Christianity and Scripture, the temple in the Old Testament, anyone could go into it, even Gentiles, could Israelites and Gentiles, all people could go into the temple. But they, no one could go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go into this place. And you might be thinking, well, that doesn't make sense. I don't understand why. Well, just, just take my word for it right now that this was a bad thing to do. This was against God's word, and people who had done it in the past that weren't high priests were often killed for it by God's presence, not by an executioner, but by the presence of God himself. This was a heinous thing to do because the Holy of Holies was the presence of God. That's what it symbolized. So he's saying, let's go into the Holy of Holies. No one's going to look there. (laughs) They know not to. So let's go in. So Shemaiah is suggesting that Nehemiah not just entered the temple, but the holy place, the dwelling place of God, that only the high priest could enter. And it reminds me a bit of what we kind of said earlier. When we consider something more valuable than God himself, something of greater worth, we're going to disobey him to save our lives. We'll disobey him to save our jobs. We'll disobey him to save us from loneliness. We'll disobey him to save our health. So it all comes back to faith. Is God going to care for us? Is God going to offer us pleasure and companionship? Even when we have to sacrifice it in this life. It all comes back to faith. What do I believe about the gospel? If we believe that God is greater, we'll never trade him. Never. Nehemiah responds, Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? Are you kidding me? I will not go. Imagine that. The guts of this guy. I will not go. I realize, in verse 12, also the discernment of this man. He says, I realize that Tobiah and Sinbalat had hired him to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name and discredit me. That was their plot. 
the rub of all the opposition against Nehemiah the man was to prove to Israel that he's not a man of character and not a man of his word. He says he's a follower of Yahweh, but he breaks his command when it's convenient and helpful. That's what they were trying to prove. Nehemiah bravely denies their request and says, I will not go. Kill me. I won't do it. What a man of character. A man of God and a people of God do not disregard his word so that we can self-serve, so that we can save ourselves. And, and if we do, not only do we trade the best for the good, and at times the best for the evil, we're no longer useful to God's kingdom mission. We, we're not building the walls anymore. And you know, it, it kind of seemed a little arrogant to me when I first read this, Nehemiah's response. Should a man such as I run away? I kind of read it like that. You guys read like that sometimes? Should a man such as I run away? It kind of sounds like, you know, you know how brave I am. I'm Nehemiah. I don't give in to threats. My caliber of bravery would never cause me to run. He's not suggesting that he is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is not, don't, don't read it like this. This is not what he means here. He is suggesting that he has absolutely no inherent reason or right to disobey God because he is God's creature and God is his good Lord. And isn't it true that he has always been good to him, always has loved him and saved him and done everything for him. So he said, I won't do it. Should a man like me run away? Should I do what you're suggesting to do? He's saying, I'm not God. God is God. He is completely trustworthy, and I will not disobey him. Nehemiah, just to close out this sermon, was indeed a man of character. He pointed to the, the, the man of character, doesn't he? His, he wasn't perfect. He failed. But you know who didn't? Jesus Christ. The man of character. Who, who, who wept sweat drops of blood, saying, God, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. The man of character who always knew that God the Father was good and had his best intention in mind. Now, I know this is a hard message for all of us to hear, including myself, because we all fall short of this from time to time, don't we? We all see how the weakness of our flesh has caused us to go left when we should have gone right. But the solution isn't to resolve ourselves as unworthy of the task now because we failed or we've made mistakes in our Christian life. The solution isn't to think either, too, that we're incapable of, in of exhibiting this kind of strength to follow Jesus. The solution, when we find ourselves drifting away and forgetting the importance of an undistracted devotion to Jesus Christ, is simply to repent and recognize that we in Christ, in the, in the Spirit, are made equal to the task. You can do it. You can do it. It's so important for all of us, all of us in this room, not just me, not just one of you, but all of us in this room, if we claim faith in Christ, it's so important for all of us, collectively, as a church, to when faced with the temptation of the hole, the toll, and the mole, to declare, we will not. 
because he is greater. He's better. We will not do this thing. We all stand in that position of leadership too, by the way. We're all being looked at. In our church, in our work, our children, our neighbors, in the price if we run into the temple and self-serve and deny Christ, broken down walls, the job doesn't get finished. A bad and discredited name. So friends, here's the deal. Rise up and build. Put the other work down and pick the greater work up. That's all you got to do. Let your mantra clearly be every single day we will not because every single day you're being tempted to do something that you shouldn't do that brings you farther from christ so we need to pray every single day friends we will not consider this morning what you need to say no to and say no loud we will not it's the fourth quarter the victory is almost yours. Almost. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for your powerful word and your powerful display of your grace and favor to Nehemiah. We come to you, God, and we ask, Lord, for help and strength. God, we are weak. Our hands get weak. We get distracted, we get afraid, we get tempted to sin. All these things happen to us daily. I pray, Lord, strengthen our hands. Strengthen our hands. Let us have great trust in you. And God, I ask if there's anyone here this morning who has never known this kind of strength, the kind of character displayed in Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, I pray that this morning, sinners would come to repentant faith in Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. And if that's you, friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, there is a greater work that is so much more satisfying than anything that you could ever dreamed. More satisfying than work, more satisfying than relationships, love, applause, or glory. Would you come in repentant faith to, to Jesus Christ? He offers you new life. And if that's you, I just ask that you cry out to God in the silence of your own heart. This moment, don't let another moment pass. Trust in him. And turn to his love. God, we thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our hearts and in our midst. We pray, Lord, that your word would go forth broadly and that we would see a harvest of awakening in our hearts and in our neighbors. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would bless the remainder of our time. In Christ's name, amen.